Armed March with Howard's Army by Jim Wilkinson Part 2 The Resurrection Shuffle There was little new or indeed romantic about being a Rovers fan at the dawn of the 1980s. 25 games into the season under Howard Kendall, Rovers lay just another 14th brick in the 3rd Division wall as perhaps the most unseasonal Christmas number 1 ever rang out. A sloshy, goalless farce at home to Mansfield, followed by a defeat at Bramall Lane, had offered little hope of a swift return to Division 2. While Rovers fans knew that they had acquired in Kendall a very fine player, as a manager no one was really tipping him for greatness. Selection was all over the place, with a good half-dozen of the bodies he had brought in or had inherited deemed unsuitable for a regular place. Kendall, bossing it in the midfield most weeks, even had to sacrifice his most trusted partner, Tony Parks, to fill in at left-back on a couple of occasions, as he shuffled the pack. Born on the same day as George Best, the rookie manager had played schoolboy football with Brian Ferry, but Kendall was more Rory Gallagher than Glamrock. His distinguished service at Everton and Birmingham confirmed his standing as an accredited, authentic bluesman, and he committed enough to both his jobs in honest sweat to have stripped another layer of lacquer off the Irish guitarist's legendary battered Stratocaster each time he took the field. One of the greatest talents at his disposal, however, was edging very close to becoming what used to be known as a luxury player. The mercurial Duncan Mackenzie, a nimble and gifted proto number 10, who had inexplicably pitched up at Ewood for a club record fee towards the end of the previous relegation season, could delight yet infuriate in equal measure. After impressing his new boss with goals in the early rounds of the League Cup, he'd rather flattered to deceive, given a rousing ovation by his former worshippers at another cup game at Forest, but contributing only fitfully otherwise. He'd pull off a skill that you'd think was worth the price of admission alone, yet by the end of the 90 minutes you'd sometimes begrudge his wage as he trotted off in kit which hardly needed putting in the wash. He'd netted a penalty at Sheffield United, but that took his Division 3 tally only to three, just about matching his total in the League Cup two-legger against Berry. He seemed to be sailing close to the wind, no less so after yet another anonymous display in the rearranged home FA Cup third round tie against Fulham in which Andy Crawford netted to keep up a record of scoring in all three rounds so far. On the Saturday following, though no one knew or had the slightest inkling, Rovers were to begin one of the most remarkable sequences in their history. Mackenzie, who had played for Leeds, Everton and Chelsea, chose the prosaic environ of Blundell Park Grimsby on a murky January afternoon to illustrate his extravagant talent. The Mariners were in second position, they would actually go on to win the title, but two brilliant Mackenzie goals set Kendall's side rolling with a momentum which gathered to juggernaut measurements and still causes me to become giddy recalling it. Crawford netted a Craven Cottage winner in the FA Cup replay. The details are sketchy in my memory as I went down on the Saturday, it was postponed, then back on the hastily booked off Monday, postponed again, and eventually missed the game, the night after or whenever, but not until at least one night sleeping rough at Euston and bunking back on an early morning train I had no business to be on. I wasn't too popular at work. I'd only been in full-time employment at the gas board since the March previous, or at home, which was unfortunate, 
as the following Saturday was the occasion of my 21st birthday. Rovers beat Wimbledon 3-0, Crawford again, Mackenzie on target for the fourth time in three games, and Basil Rathbone opening his goal-scoring account with a shot from a distance which Don's keeper Goddard spilled like a bloke with oily washing-up gloves on dropping a decanter. There were no great coming-of-age parties to mark the night as I opted to have the money instead, and spent the vast bulk of it on paying for my mate's taxes and ale all night round town, and then up to the Bayos New Inns. So empty were my pockets by the end of this undertaking, I, spectacularly inebriated, had to bail out of the taxi home to Cherry Tree as the meter matched my available funds, and knock my far-from-impressed grandparents on Audley up for a kip on the settee with a waste bin handy just in case. Happily recovered a week later, I was back at Ewood for what they used to call a plum cup tie at home to First Division Coventry City. Such was the draw of the competition that where 7,000 had turned up a week before, almost 21,000 attended on a Siberian afternoon on which football would certainly be called off everywhere in present times. Gordon Milne was in the midst of putting together an exciting young side at Highfield Road. A week earlier, they'd beaten the almost invincible then Liverpool 1-0, the first team to do so in the league since Forest back in September. Amongst their highly rated talents were youngsters Mark Haightley, Gary Gillespie, Tommy English, Andy Blair, as well as the older stages like Tommy Hutchinson, Jim Blythe and Ian Wallace. With Ewood as slippy as the ice rink, which now stands just a mile or so away, the visitors took the field in highly unusual and rather unpleasant brown outfit, incorporating incongruous stripes designed to reflect the logo of their sponsor's Talbot Motors. The combination of the surface, the attire, and the uncanny ability of the nimble-footed Brotherston, Crawford and Mackenzie to effortlessly keep their feet served to make the Midlanders uncomfortable right from the off. Mackenzie, light on his loafers at the best of time in a footballing sense, in particular gave a ballet on ice display, as if this was the surface he'd waited all his life to play on. The lineup is the classic one you remember from that season, but if I'm not mistaken, it was the first time that Kendall had alchemised it together. Arnold in goal, Brannigan, Keeley, Fazakley, Rathbone, in midfield, Brotherston, Kendall, Parks, Mackenzie, and then up front, Crawford and Garner. What a back four and a keeper that was. Crawford's graceful first-time skimmer opened the scoring, and Rovers never looked likely to surrender the lead, other than over their dead bodies. It was exhilarating, the first time for more than a decade that a Rovers side had performed a genuine giant killing. Many of those who came just out of curiosity for the FA Cup, many religiously did so back then, were sufficiently enthused by such a sparkling performance, allied with a streak of steel, that they were persuaded to return for the league fixtures. Rovers drew Villa at home in the next round, a club who had descended down to the third tier themselves in the early 1970s, but were now every bit a top six side in the top flight. But there was a fortnight of league business to attend to first. I went on the train to Southend, courtesy of a personal voucher. Back then, six vouchers bought you two tickets with a price of one. I still managed to miss Andy Crawford's winner on a visit to the gents having had a pint or two pre-match. One nil to the Rovers was assuming a familiar ring. Games weren't routinely televised or filmed and filtered into highlight packages, and I've still never seen that goal. In the week, Rovers were away at Rotherham United. It was the night another key contributor, hitherto peripheral, entered the fray as a key player. 
Jim Brannigan decided to have a go and emulate his fullback partner Basil's long pot from a few days earlier, and he too hit the jackpot. But it was Simon Garner's first two goals since netting against Burnley ten months earlier, which proved the difference between the sides. My dad and I had a pint in the supporters' club before and stood on the side with some Rotherham-supporting miners who were on strike at the time. I remember one saying good-naturedly, If we win this bugger, I'll go back for 12.5%. I was so proud that the team was doing so well that my dad, who had found it difficult to watch Furfers and even Gordon Lee's third division sides regularly, had come along to see what the fuss was about. Blackpool was soundly beaten 2-0 at Ewood, Kendall virtually ripping the net from its rigging with the second. With a few visitors present and after a couple of wins in the cup exploits, the gate had practically doubled to 14,571 since the last home league game. Incredibly, it doubled again in a week when Villa were in town for the fifth round. A scarcely credible 29,468 turned up, Ewood's biggest gate since the same stage in 1969 when 43,000 had seen us lose to Manchester City. Fielding the vast majority of players with whom they conquer England and Europe in the following two years, including Gordon Cairns, Villa were ahead at half-time. But this Rover side was beginning to resent conceding a goal, let alone losing a game, and after a Herculean second-half effort, urged and prompted by Kendall's know-how and battle experience, the old dancing Will-o'-the-Wisp Brotherston landed a cross so full of danger into the box that Villa defender Alan Evans could only divert it past his own keeper. Five league wins on the run, two top division sides more than matched, the Rovers supporting public finally had a team to believe in. The infectious nature of the rollercoaster emotions was summed up for me in the midweek morning of the replay. I'd already planned an early dart from my business studies day release at the Tech to get to Birmingham in good time, but to my amazement virtually the whole class had decided to go along. Lads who played on Saturdays, kids who didn't particularly support Rovers, and even a couple of the girls who'd shown no great interest in football. It was a class trip. Not that there was much point in staying for your attendance, Mark. Two of the scheduled late afternoon lecturers had also announced that something unforeseen had cropped up. It had that all right. I can taste that sense of exhilaration setting off and travelling down. There were 42,000 at Villa Park and I have no idea what our following was, but it certainly had grown exponentially since, as my wife recalls, the full travelling contingent of about 18 on an Accrington branch bus to Millwall had an individual police handler and a dog apiece to accompany them into the den three months earlier. Evans scored a late winner for Villa, after a heroic, almost superhuman effort. I'm no lover of those scenarios where teams come and clap the visiting fans, particularly after losing, but the bond between the fans, each other and the team was special indeed by the end of that night. Whilst the disappointment was profound, Belief was coursing through veins that something very special was taking shape. Plymouth were dispatched at home park thanks to another vital Garner goal, but there was a hiccup in midweek when Exeter gained a deserved draw at Ewood to mildly disappoint another five-figure turnout. Having seen a six-game league winning streak end, Kendall simply re-rallied his troops, still only fringe promotion candidates in sixth spot, no playoffs in those days remember, and only three up sent them out to win the next eight on the bounce, significantly conceding just once in those 720 minutes. You knew pretty well by the end of it that if Rovers scored first, they generally won the game, as simple as that. Brentford and Gillingham were beaten 3-0 and 3-1 at Ewood, the Gillingham game on a Friday night for reasons lost in the midst of time, but another trademark 1-0 at Colchester, sandwiched in between. 
Crawford scored in all three. Actually caught the Colchester one after another beery personal voucher trip, and Mackenzie made a nonsense of the fact that he was even playing at this level by providing two slaloming individual strikes against Gillingham. Now fourth. Next up was a trip to Chesterfield, who lay a place above us. Another massive following snaked through the Derbyshire Dales to Saltergate, where the home supporters found themselves outnumbered in a 14,623 crowd. Garner continued his habit of scoring priceless away goals with the solitary one of the day. A little vignette played out on the touchline as Simon's effort nestled, which spoke volumes of the commonality of purpose and esprit de corps Kendall had instilled. Sub-Stuart Metcalf, a local hero and old head who'd effectively lost his place to Kendall, save for the odd occasion the 33-year-old gaffer needed a rest, was never the happiest lad to be left out. His omission from the starting lineup for the opener of the 78-79 season had been headline news in the early edition of the Evening Telegraph on the front page. The fans were unhappy and Metcalf had to be persuaded to stay and take his place as the sole sub. Typically, he came on with Rovers losing, and although never the most prolific or clinical of goalscorers, he collected the ball deep out wide and skipped past several defenders, before unleashing a shot which everyone present knew was laced with venom towards Eiley into the Palace net. Now he was relegated to an even more occasional role on a regular basis, as Chesterfield keeper Turner turned to see Garner's header hit the back of the net. Metcalf was off the bench and running down the touchline, punching the air as if he himself had scored. We truly were on the march with Howard's army, players and supporters unified, and manically focused on keeping hold of the top three spot we now held. Fans, players, disaffected player, whatever, this was special stuff happening, and the thrill of being part of it was contagious. Swindon would routinely dispatch 2-0 at Ewood, Crawford with both, before a unique and never-to-be-repeated treble over the Easter weekend. Facing Hull City at home on the Friday, Mansfield away on the Saturday, and Sheffield United back at Ewood on the Monday, Rovers won all three by a single goal. All scored in the first half. The same 11 players started all three games, and there was just a single sub used in the Mansfield game albeit it was a significant one. Mackenzie scored a rifle-crack winner against Hull, and after Crawford had gone off as a precaution at Field Mill, he was on hand to acrobatically send the rebound home after substitute Metcalf's free kick came back off the bar. At half-time, Kendall brought his players back out of the hot, sticky dressing rooms and sat them on the pitch in the fresh air for a bit of a massage. Mackenzie was the last to emerge, with a packet of Benson hedges and a lighter in his hand, and he stood puffing on a gasper talking to a steward by the tunnel, the single greatest thing I've ever seen at a football match. I can feel yet the glow of standing there in the sun on that open end with my mates all around, as happy as it was possible to be. There's a small picture of a football crowd on the cover of the Jam's sound effects, which I often used to think could have been our lot at Field Mill. Years later I discovered via the internet that it wasn't, but we're all certainly as thick as thieves, I know that isn't on the album, the song always makes me think of that day. I think we knew we were going up. Crawford was restored to score the inevitable single goal against the Blades, and it was 14 wins and a draw from 15, 29 points out of 30. Even the end of the run had a few curios and one particularly significant life event for me. The personal vouchers offer had ended, so I went to Exeter on Paul Astley's Accrington branch coach for the first time in ages. There were two young girls sat directly in front of me, my mate Peter and I took a bit of a shine to the shy redhead, who obviously knew her stuff as far as rovers were concerned. 
The bandwagon was rolling so unstoppably that another pal who worked on the railways, John Fletcher, had used one of his free travel passes to go down and watch the first half, only before he was due back on shift at 8pm in Preston and he had to bugger off at half-turn. The young girl with the red hair had to walk round three sides of the Greyhound track, booed all the way round by the home fans, to go to the only ladies' facilities on the ground, different times. Exeter were good value for the 2-0 win, such was the rarity of anyone moaning about players being tired and so on, I'm sure no one even mentioned that they'd only had two games to our three in the eight Easter days before with the fixture. Crawford got a hat-trick the week after, as Rovers bounced back with a 4-2 home win over Reading, the ever-trusty Parks scoring a penalty for his only league goal that season, but I recall almost considering it as a virtual defeat as we conceded twice in a game. The briefly unhappy sequence continued in midweek when second-place Sheffield Wednesday were just a little bit better than us on the night, and it was their considerable horde of fans singing the night away after a 2-1 win in front of Ewood's highest league crowd for years, 26,130. It's so sad that no film records of these weeks exist. There was only brief time to lick the wounds after the Owls had avenged their early season defeat. Another sun-kissed, and I have to admit beer-fueled afternoon at Oxford, the travelling 2,000 or so seem mainly to have assembled en masse in a pub garden opposite the manor ground. I think I might have been so bold as to offer the young red-haired Lasley a glass of coke on one of my numerous pre-match visits to the bar. She was to become my wife, but through some measure of carelessness on my part, not actually until 2002. But that's another story. Garner's knack for winners on the road continued for another one niller at the manor ground, and with two games against Bury to come, and a point needed to be sure, promotion was virtually in the bag, with news coming through as we left that our claret-clad neighbours were equally tied on to be relegated and swapped places with us, the whole coach sang, Rovers up, Burnley down, hallelujah, practically all the way to Stafford, where Astley had arranged a lengthy pit stop around the town. The Tuesday night at Gig Lane is the stuff of Rovers legend. More than 10,000 made the short trip to Bury, and the only panic was getting there on time as the unending convoys plodded along the main routes. I was picked up from work on Duke Street in Blackburn, and our wheelman Pete took us on a route over the Roman road out of Darwin I never knew existed. Happily behind the goal, nobody knew which was the home end or the away end, and the Bury fans were happy to see both. In time for a kick-off, the situation was that we would have to lose both remaining games, while Chesterfield had to win both of theirs for us to miss out. I can't remember how the scoring went other than it was one apiece at half-time, good enough, and though Barry were fighting for survival, they missed out by two points. Crawford scored his second of the night to precipitate scenes reminiscent of the Argentina World Cup a couple of years earlier. Ticker tape and streamers cascaded down from the old wooden terraces, as rovers in red shirts with a daft outside of some red rowers for a badge, sealed promotion at the first attempt. Mission completed. Kendall had done it. In pictures from the night, he still looks a young man, a player celebrating rather than a manager who had just had a huge weight of responsibility lifted off him. Derek Fazakale, considerably younger, looks like the effort had put years on him as he's led off tearfully, while Kendall, a born winner who was destined for greater triumphs in management, beams. He looked as gloriously, blissfully happy as he would have done had the Preston side he played in in the FA Cup final, aged 17 in 1964, beaten West Ham instead of losing 4-2. We stayed for an hour or so, chanting his name until finally letting the players disappear and filing out ecstatic. 
I've no idea if or where I got back for a drink. I couldn't have been any higher on life itself. Ironically, Barry won at Ewood on the Saturday, a big handy lad named Johnson who'd scored at Gig Lane banging two crackers in, but there was no stopping the continuation of the celebrations begun four nights earlier, as Rovers missed out on the outside chance of the title to finish second. It had been quite a fairy tale season, if not quite a miracle. Kendall came close to pulling one of those off just 12 months later. But that's in part three. That was On the March with Howard's Army by Jim Wilkinson, which is available on the Blue-Eyed Boy WordPress site. It was first published in October 2015 at the time of Howard Kendall's untimely demise. <laughs>